I think one of the things that um, brings me so much joy in life is the passion to which you guys worship with. And so thanks for being such a passionate church. And um, I, I know that that doesn't just happen on Sunday mornings. I know that's out of an overflow of people who meet with Jesus daily and in their own FaceTime, just passionately pour out their hearts to God. So thank you for doing that. That is just so exciting. And it often brings tears to my eyes just seeing people that are 100% locked in on bringing Jesus affirmation. What, what an incredible blessing for a pastor to see. And um, that's about getting rocked. And then, you know, our last part about giving it away, Kendall was already sharing with you from uh, the Halloween Harvest Festival. We just love giving the joy and the love we found in Jesus away to people. And so that's why we do this, this festival. I really want to ask you to jump in. Um, the last several years, we've had almost 100% involvement for people that are part of us. So in a couple weekends, I just ask you, we'll, we'll even have food trucks outside for you to grab your lunch afterwards from one of these food trucks. And then we'll set up. And basically what we're doing is just providing a safe and positive experience for this community, specifically a lot of kids in the City Heights area, to have a, have a uplifting experience on Halloween and where they'll even hear about Jesus. We have a prayer and healing tent. Uh, we have to pray for numerous people. Numerous people made decisions to give their lives to Christ. Uh, they came for candy and they got Christ. That's a great, that's a great day. And, um, this, this last week, we were actually over at Horace Mann Middle School, which was our home for uh, the first four years of, of meeting together corporately as All People's Church. And it was so awesome, we threw a big banquet for the teachers. And so all the teachers were sitting around. And, and wow, we were, we were so blessed and honored by Principal Courtney Young, the head principal over there. She just went on and on thanking us for... Um, the different ones of you that have volunteered through the years at Horace Mann and our Bible club and the different um, sports teams uh, that we helped them with, with the coats that we gave to the different refugee kids that had just come over. Um, it, it was such a blessing, even some big financial gifts we gave the school. We, we never want to be a church that just commutes in and uses a facility. We want to impact the area around us. Amen. So hopefully in upcoming days, you'll get to hear more about ways that we're going to sow into Crawford High School. And, and we're still having the, the Harvest Festival over at Horace Mann. We pass out invitations to all of the kids, both at, at, at Horace Mann and at Crawford, just providing them the opportunity to be blessed. We just do this 100% free, uh, giving away food, giving away entertainment. Uh, for the community. So really want you to be involved. And I think in your, if you'd grab this card for me, it was in your bulletin. Would everyone grab their card for a second? Because we're actually going to do something interesting. I constantly talk to people and I say, how did you find us? And even this morning, I met a sweet woman who said, well, someone came to my door and gave me a card. And um, it's amazing how God can use anything, right? In the Old Testament, he even used a donkey. And so God can use a little card. There's a whole group of people in this church that actually came to Christ because one kid got one of these cards. They brought their family. That whole family came to Christ, and then numerous other people started finding Jesus. So 
Don't ever underestimate what just a simple gesture of handing out a card can do. A, a couple of families that are some of my very closest friends in the world came to this church for the first time because they were invited to this harvest festival. So I'm particularly thankful for it. So hold your card in your hand. And I just want you to pray with me right now that God will use us to distribute these cards around the city to the right people so that they can come and have a positive experience finding out that church isn't just about some stuffy religious thing, but it's about the love, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit, as that song just says, that they can find God and it can change their lives forever. So, Father, these cards that are in our hands, give us the boldness to hand them to the right people. Anoint them. I don't really know how you could anoint a card, but, Lord, if you can, do it. And let it be used to bring people in to, at the least, experience your joy and and have fun. And at the most, to have their lives absolutely transformed. In Jesus' name. And they all said, Amen. Amen. Great job, church. Turn to Romans chapter 5. We're in a series called Uncomfortable, marching through the book of Romans. And we call it uncomfortable because often what we're finding in this book makes our outer man or what the Bible says is our flesh. It can make us really uncomfortable. But there are also truths that bring us the greatest amount of comfort. And if you've been tracking with us, we've been going through large portions of scripture every week. This week, however, as I was studying Romans chapter 5, one or two particular scriptures really stuck out to me kind of launched off the page as something that we really needed to dive into as a church community. And so we're really going to focus on these these small passages here because I believe it's a topic that will impact your life. It's a topic that we all will have to go through, starting in Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. It says this, Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom He has given us. This morning we're going to address the uncomfortable topic of suffering. But I believe as we do that God wants to bring us great comforts to our heart. As you study history, as you look at philosophers, everyone would agree that suffering is a part of every life. The German philosopher Nietzsche says this, to live is to suffer. There's a whole genre of books that are about suffering. I remember in college being deeply impacted by a book called Night. With, uh, authored by a man named Eli Wiesel, a Jewish man who had gone through the Nazi concentration camps. And I remember just being so impacted about the human soul as it goes through suffering. Uh, last year I read a book called Unbroken, highly recommended, about a former Olympian named Louis Zamperini, who was shot down by the Japanese and suffered through uh, the prisoner of war camps in World War II. Uh, one of the people I'll use an example later in the, in the sermon will be Helen Keller, who at 19 months endured a, a very traumatic illness that left her deaf, mute, and blind. And we might not experience suffering to that degree, but what I want to tell you, men and women today, is that suffering will be a part of every human's life. 
Jesus said this in John 16, uh, John 16, 33. In this world, you will have trouble. Let me read to you 1 Peter 4.12. I don't have this up, but just listen to it. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you were suffering as though something strange were happening to you. The Bible's clear that everyone will go through suffering. And I find this really important for us to actually take a whole sermon to address because suffering is often like a, a tripwire or, or a landmine that you're going on your Christian journey and then you step on suffering and you feel like your life is in an explosion. And so often what it does to believers is it makes us accuse God. We say, God, if you're so good, why are you letting me go through something like this? God, if you're omnipotent, if you're all-powerful, why would you let me encounter something that's so dreadfully painful? And first of all, let me just say, men and women, that I don't think God takes suffering lightly. And this isn't a, in a sermon where I'm going to come and beat you down saying, if you're suffering, you just need to suck it up. That's not how God interacts with his people in times of pain. We see very clearly that Jesus is seen as a person of great compassion. Matthew 9, it talks about as he looked at the crowds, he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, and he was moved with compassion. The Bible over and over again talks about God being gracious and compassionate. Jesus himself went through extraordinary suffering. Isaiah 53 prophesied about Jesus that he'd be a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. So your suffering isn't taken light by your heavenly Father. But why does he let us go through it? If he is all-powerful, why would he let us encounter such difficult and challenging times? Well, I want to propose to you one reason today. There's numerous, and we probably will never understand in the mystery and providence of God all the reasons we go through suffering. But I want to tell you one, and it's very powerful, and I think it is enough for us to gain some traction in the area of suffering today. And it's found in Romans 5. And let me just start with this. In that first verse, it says, Because we know that suffering produces... We know that suffering produces. You see, suffering actually produces something in you. Suffering actually produces something in you. In the college service, it's midweek on Thursday nights called Awaken. We've been going through one of my favorite characters of the Bible. And going through his life, his name is Joseph. We've been going through a series called No Ordinary Joe. In this study of Joseph... We've been talking about the things he encountered, the things he endured. And I want to just take you into his life. If you're not familiar with Joseph, his story is in Genesis chapter 37. And I just want to unpack it for you for a moment so you can see where he came from before we show you where he ended up. Genesis 37 says this, starting in verse 2. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. He made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and they couldn't speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. We're in verse 5. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen, 
I had this dream. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Here's what we know about Joseph. Joseph first was a tattletale. He was a tattletale. He went, the first thing we read about him is he brought his, his father a bad report about his brothers. Secondly, we know that Joseph was a spoiled brat. He was born in his father's old age and his dad does something probably not that wise. He shows that he's the favorite son and he puts this robe around him. And, and thirdly, we know that Joseph was a show-off. Because he didn't just take this robe and go, thank you so much, Dad. He just flaunts it around. He runs around with his robe. And all his brothers are out doing the hard work in the fields, tending sheep. And Joseph just gets to stay in the home and reading his books and wearing his robe. And he gets sent out. And what does it say? It says he wore his robe out there. You see, he was a total show-off. And he loved showing his brothers how much more important he was than them. Then he's given a dream. And the dream is from God. But what does Joseph do? He doesn't go low in humility. He rises up high and goes, Hey, boys, listen to this dream I had. I was up high and you were dirty dogs down low. So what happened? His brothers hate him. Now, Joseph had a call from God. But because of his lack of humility, his lack of character, he was destroying and actually making a mockery of the God who had called him. And he was certainly offending his brothers. And so God allowed for something to happen in Joseph's life. We see it further on in chapter 37. It says in verse 23, So when Joseph came to his brothers, they had already seen him from a long way off. He comes up and they strip him of his robe and they throw him down into this cistern. And then it says in verse 28, And then some Midianite merchants come by and his brother pull Joseph out of the cistern and sell him for 20 shekels of slavery to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. They sell Joseph into slavery. What in the world? Now here, I know we're looking at a lot of scripture, but I want to show you what happens once Joseph's in slavery. Genesis 39 says this, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered. In the midst of his suffering as a slave, the Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered. And he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in the eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. Well, let's stop there. So Joseph, this spoiled brat, this show-off, this tattletale, gets thrown into slavery and he's taken into Egypt. Well, God's with them and he starts being faithful and he starts being responsible and so he's pulled up to be the attendant. And so all of a sudden, he's really helping Potiphar oversee his house. But then some of you know the story that happens next. Potiphar's wife sees him. And Scripture says in Genesis 39 that Joseph was handsome and well-built. And so she looks at him and she goes, Woo, that looks fun. Joseph, come to bed with me. Now Joseph 
has learned some character by now. And so Joseph says, no, I won't go there. I won't do that. He says, hey, the master's put me in charge of everything. The only thing he's withheld is you. I wouldn't do such a wicked thing. I'm sure Joseph's thinking, I finally got this thing down. I'm finally honoring God. And what happens? She gets mad and she frames him. One day when he's near, she grabs his coat, says, come to bed with me. And he goes, no! And he runs off. And she's so ticked off that he wouldn't sleep with her. And she starts screaming, ah! Ah! This Israelite, he's trying to make sport of me. He's trying to sleep with me. The master comes home. And he unfortunately believes his wife instead of Joseph. And he's so angry. How could you do this to me? How could you try to sleep with my wife behind my back? And he throws him into a dungeon. Now, can you imagine what's going on in Joseph's mind? First of all, he's thinking, you know, here I am. I I was loved by my daddy. I was loved by my mommy. I had this sweet coat. And then my brothers throw me down and they tear up my coat. And then they sell me into slavery. And you know what, God? Maybe I can understand that. You know, I was a jerk. I was spoiled. I was cocky. But now I'm trying to be your man. I'm trying to live right. Here I am. I've served in Potiphar's house. And then when his wife wants to sleep with me, I knew that was wrong. And that's going on all over Egypt. But I said no. And what do I get as a payment for that? I get betrayed. And I get thrown into prison. God, what's going on? I think a lot of us probably have encountered suffering where we say, God, what's going on? I see so many people around me that they don't give a rip about you, God. And they just seem to be prospering. They have all the money they need. They have the health they need. Their families seem to be okay. And here I am trying to honor you and serve you. And this is what I get in return. Remember my first encounter with suffering like this was when I was a teenager. Many of you have heard the story. I was playing football and in the middle of a game, I know something's going wrong, and afterwards my heart rate is going really fast, and I'm having trouble breathing, and I end up in the hospital, and they do the defibrillators where they shock you, and your body lunges forward, and it burns your chest, and they do all these surgeries, and they're rushing me in ambulances places, and kind of the height of it, I remember being in, I was from Austin, I'm in Houston, I'm away from my family. I'm away from my friends. I've lost sports. I go through this surgery, and it goes really bad, and I'm in excruciating pain, and my heart rate's going 300 beats a minute. It looks like I could die. I'm just in agony, and emotionally, I'm losing it, and I look at my mom, and I say, why? Why is this happening to me? Why, mom? Explain to me, why me? Mom, there's so many kids, because I was a Christian by then, I said, there's so many kids, they don't love God, I love God, why is this happening to me? Why am I suffering like this? I named some different kids, and I said, they're living like hell, why? I'm not living that way, and why am I suffering like this? I think that can be a question that we deal with as believers when we go through suffering. But there's this little hint that we see in Psalm 105. I've just seen this this year. And and, and it it is really powerful. And I want to take you into it because we have to do a little uncovering to get there of what God was doing. If you go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 105 in your Bibles. 105. We're going to start in verse 16. 
I, I've never seen this until this year. I heard a, a wonderful man of God start unpacking this, and so I really started studying this. This is actually in the Psalms where it's recounting what God did in Joseph's time in the world. And it says this, it says, He, meaning God, called down a famine on the land. So you know what's going to happen in the end of this story is there's this great famine in Egypt where Joseph is, okay? And, and Joseph's going to be called on to help in this famine. Now, Joseph didn't know that yet. So it says, he called down a famine on the land. God called down a famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies of food. And then he sent a man before them, Joseph. Here's the deal. Whenever there's a crisis that God allows in the world, he always appoints men and women of righteousness to rise up and lead his people through that crisis. Did you hear me? So God appointed Joseph. But how did he prepare him? Look at what it says here. Sold as a slave. Joseph's preparation was being sold into slavery, and then it's going to get even more specific. They bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons. Till what he foretold came to pass, till the word of the Lord proved him true. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He didn't just set him free, though. Look at verse 21. He made him master of his household, ruler over all he possessed. Now, here's where I want to dive in a little more. Verse 17, where it says, They bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons. That's not actually a good translation of the word. Yes, his feet were put in shackles. But where it says his neck was put in irons, that's not a good translation. Because the word neck here is actually translated from a Hebrew word named nefesh. Do we have that? Do we have the Hebrew word? Nefesh. And nefesh doesn't mean neck. It means soul or inner being. And then it says they were put into irons. Actually, that word, that, that Hebrew word is bow, which means came into or to enter in. What is this actually saying? Put up the Young's literal translation. This is the actual Hebrew, a better literal translation. It says this, they have afflicted with fetters his feet. Iron hath entered his soul. Iron hath entered his soul. So you say, Robert, what are you, what are you driving at? What are you trying to get through this? Here's what I'm trying to say. Is that what God was doing was he was taking a wimpy mama's boy. And through his crisis, he was transforming him into an iron man. Woo! Thank you. Hopefully I can get some more whoops when I say this again. He was taking a wimpy mama's boy and infusing into his soul iron. When God, thank you. When God wanted a man to lead the known world, that's what Egypt was, right? This was the most important country in the world. And all the nations start streaming to Egypt. When God wanted a man to lead the known world through a great world crisis, he took a man who had endured many personal crises. Are you following me, men and women? The crises we have aren't just for you to survive. They are for you to have iron infused in your soul so that you can rise up and help lead many in a time of great crisis. I was thinking about how weak I was as a little kid. I definitely had some health issues. As a kid, I had 
horrible allergies, so I was always sick. I had a sore throat. I had a runny nose all the time. I'd, it would turn into infection. I'd miss school. I'd miss sporting events. And my parents finally got really fed up with that. And so they took me to an allergist. And so the allergist gave shots, gave me shots to infuse into my bloodstream things that would build up my inside, my tolerance. Makes me think about in 1952 and 1953, there was this great polio epidemic going on in the United States. So what did they do to fight polio? They actually injected a tiny bit of polio, a tiny, tiny portion of this virus that was dead into people. Why? So that their inner man could learn to have resistance against it. It was an inoculation to learn to fight that crisis of polio. So when the big crisis came from the outside, their body was strong on the inside and boom, they could fight it. Are you following me yet? The little crises we go through, the suffering we go through makes us stronger. It gives us an iron constitution so that we get tougher. And t- I, I see this all the time. This is so funny. Coaching soccer. I coach little, little guys in soccer. I was doing it yesterday. I see this with my little three and five-year-olds, right? We have these things these days called helicopter parents. Have you heard of helicopter parents? These helicopter parents, here's a little Johnny, three years old, and the parents go, I will not let Johnny be hurt. I will take Johnny here. Little Johnny has never scraped his knee once because helicopter parents don't let him fall, right? We put a helmet on him, knee pads. You're going to walk to the kitchen. Here, put this helmet on. So I can really tell when a parent has not let their kids ever have any type of crisis because they come out on my team, the surf monkeys or the blue sharks or whatever team that year, and they're running, and they accidentally trip. Boom! And they are out. The rest of the game, what? You're like, come on, kid. What? You know, they just sit there in the middle of the field. The game just plays on around them. I can't believe I fell down. Now, here's what we know about great athletes. You know, w- once you get into sports like football and things like that, you, you actually practice Running into people. I mean, little kids, they run into each other, and these ones that have never, you know, had these any kind of... They hit their heads once. Ah, I hate soccer. It's over. Walk off the field. You can't get them to play again. The older we get, though, we learn, say, for those who played football, you, you actually practice hitting people. I know it's not smart. It's a great illustration. So... You, you practice hitting people. You practice pushing through the pain. Why? Because you know the only way you're going to score, the only way you're going to have victory is if you press through. Oh, spin. Oh, spin. And you keep going. Can you imagine some big football player? He hit me, right? No, he's practiced enough. He's been hit enough to know. Just because I'm hit, just because I'm hurting, doesn't mean I stop. I'm going to go no matter what it takes. That's the way we're going to have victory. Scripture says, let's unpack it. It says suffering produces perseverance. Suffering produces perseverance in verse 3. I think about who we mentioned earlier in, in 1866 in Boston, Massachusetts, a, a young 
baby girl was in a family of Irish immigrants. Her and her brother. But at eight years old, her mother died and young Annie Sullivan was forced to be put into the poorhouse, a type of house that would just take people off the streets. And so she was, because her father didn't have the money to take care of her, at least she could get a meal there and have a bed. And so she was being raised in a real hardened environment next to criminals and prostitutes and, and thieves. And, and then within three months of being placed there, after losing her mother, after having been put there by her father, her little brother Jimmy dies of tuberculosis. Annie's life was incredibly painful. So when the visiting officials of the city came to visit, she pleaded with them, please let me get out. Please send me to give me an, ex- uh, an education. The problem was that she had trachoma, this real serious eye disease. And so she was really losing her vision. But someone had mercy on her and sent her to the Perkins Institute. And there she worked hard. She worked so hard. And she not only learned to read But she also learned Braille and she also learned the hand alphabet. And at 20 years old, she sent without any training to help school a deaf and blind young woman named Helen Keller. Helen Keller was a terror. Helen Keller was known for breaking things in her home, for absolutely going crazy, for being dangerous. And so the first night that Annie Solomon gets to the home at a young 20 years old, Helen just starts throwing an absolute temper tantrum and the, and the family starts acquiescing and just stepping back and letting Helen do whatever she wants. But Annie said, no, I want everyone to leave the room. I will out-persevere Helen. I will outlast her. She just stood, she sat in that room. Enduring screaming and fits of rage. The next day, instead of saying, I need a break, she said, put me and Helen in a house by ourselves. I will outlast this girl. So she gets put in this little tiny guest house, and for days on end, she just determines, I will out-persevere Helen Keller. I will outlast her. And finally, after days and days and days of not being able to communicate, she's trying all these different messages. She's finally pouring water over Helen's hand, and then 30 times in her hand writes out the word water until, boom, Helen finally gets it. And Helen talks about that being like a birthday of her soul. Because of the suffering that Annie went through, she was able to persevere. And because of her perseverance, she absolutely transformed Helen Keller's life. Now look, it doesn't just say that suffering leads to perseverance. But it says this, that perseverance leads to character. Look at that in verse 4. Perseverance, character. Now listen to what Helen Keller wrote about character. Here's a quote from her. It says, character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Men and women, I hate to tell you this, but it's not just going to come from reading some good books. Our character won't even be developed just from reading the Bible a lot. Even though I want to encourage you to be faithful students of the Bible. Unfortunately, it's not just from meditating on character enough that we become a person of great character. It is through affliction. Listen to what Helen Keller wrote. She says, only through the experience of trial and suffering Can the soul be strengthened, ambition inspired, and success achieved? Helen Keller had been this awful child. I mean, one of the stories talked about her when they finally called out for outside help was when she went into her baby sibling's new room and purposely turns over the cradle so the baby would land on its head. This was not just, oh, sweet, poor child. No, she was 
out of control. She was hurtful. She'd throw plates at people. She, would, she was really mean. But what happened? Because a woman who had suffered and learned perseverance determined to teach her perseverance. She determined to teach Helen perseverance in the midst of her trial. What it birthed was godly character. Joseph went through this trial of becoming a slave. But then the next trial wasn't fair. It was a trial of getting falsely accused and sent into a dungeon. But what did Joseph learn in the dungeon? He learned character. He learned humility. He learned faithfulness. He learned to go low. He learned character in that trial. And what does it say? It goes on to say this, that character produces hope. Verse 4, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, how does character produce hope? Because there's no way you can become a person of godly character without learning to hope in God. One of the greatest motivations for being a person of character is our God of hope because we start understanding that God is a covenant God. That if we will respond in the character in which he's called us to, then God will be faithful to keep his end of the promise. Look at Galatians 6. This is one of my favorite scriptures. Some people might see this as a negative thing. I see this as a very positive thing. It says this, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Ooh, that sounds all scary. Well, it is if you're living a life of sin. But listen to this. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please a sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Men and women, I want to tell you, when you respond in Christ-like character, you will reap a harvest. When you respond in Christ-like character, you will reap a harvest. I know the temptation is out there. We're hurting financially. And all of a sudden, you find out you owe more taxes. And you're like, well, maybe I can cheat on my taxes. Maybe if I cheat on my taxes, then I'll have that extra little money. Or, or maybe I'll just take cash instead of actually noting it on my taxes. And then you remember, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. If I do good, if I do right, God will reward me. I will not cheat on my taxes. I will trust God that he sees what's done in secret and he will reward me. Students, you're in class and all of a sudden you're looking at a test and you realize the teacher totally didn't talk about this aspect of the class being on the test. And then you're sitting by the smartest person. Why are we always sitting next to the smartest person as Christians? And you think, all I have to do is just barely turn my head. This te- it's this teacher's fault. And, and if I get a bad grade, I might fail out of this class. And if I fail, then I won't graduate. And if I don't graduate, I won't have a job. And if I don't have a job, I'll be in the poorhouse. And if I'm in the poorhouse, And God's saying, trust me. Trust me. It's more important who you are in the inside When you're a person of character, there's always hope in God's faithfulness. God is a covenant God. He's the one who says, test me in this. Give this and see if I don't pour out an overabundance on you. You will reap what you sow. 
And so we learn character, and Joseph learned character. And he learned, yeah, even when I do things and it seems like everything's going wrong, actually God was just putting me in the place where he could use me the greatest. You see, sometimes our suffering puts us in a prison and we just fight and we want to get out and we want to cheat and we want to squirm. But that prison is actually the doorway to the palace. That prison is actually the doorway to the palace. Joseph could have never got to the palace if it wasn't for the prison. And sometimes your suffering is the very thing that will define you. The suffering that Annie Sullivan went through was the very thing that defined her, made her a person of perseverance, character, taught her hope, and put her in a place to impact the world. And we're still talking about her today, almost 100 years later. This is what God did in Joseph. He learned... If I respond this way, I can always put hope in God. And he, in fact, learned, you know what? Actually, I have nothing in myself. It's all about God. God is my hope. He is known as the living hope. So watch this last verse I'm going to read about Joseph. It's absolutely awesome. It's the apex, the pinnacle of his life. I believe it's the ultimate test that he passes, which allows him to then go and be the ruler of, over all of Egypt. Listen to this. So what, what happened is Joseph's down in prison, right? And Pharaoh has this dream. And Pharaoh can't get any of his wise men and his sorcerers, astronomers to interpret the dream. But then he hears about this guy in prison named Joseph that can interpret dreams. So he says, hey, would you go and get Joseph and bring him to me so he can interpret my dream? So this is what's happening when we come to uh, chapter 41, verse 14. It says, so Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. And when he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Verse 16 rocks. Joseph looks at him and says, I cannot do it. Pharaoh had just set him up. He had just said, Joseph, here's a big tee with a golf ball on it and take a swing. And Joseph said, I can't do it. I can't do it. He looks at Pharaoh and says, I can't do it. It's not about me. It's not about my talents and my giftings and my abilities. But he says, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. But God. I can't do it, but God. But God will. I can't do it, but God will. You see, our sufferings lead to perseverance and our perseverance character and character hope in God. And so Joseph by now has realized, you know what, doing my own life, tattling on my brothers, flaunting around in this coat, even just trying to be a good guy in Potiphar's house, it didn't work out to me that well. But God, but God, he is my hope. And you know the rest of the story. Pharaoh pulls Joseph up and says, put this man in charge. And Joseph leads the nation in its greatest crisis of history. And he's used by God to save all of his family and his friends and his nation. Here's the last part of the verse that we want to look at today. And it says in hope, verse 5, and hope does not disappoint us. Romans chapter 5, verse 5, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts 
God has poured out his love into our hearts. Men and women, what I want to tell you today, which still baffles me, it still amazes me, that in the midst of our suffering is often the time where we experience God's love in the greatest measure. In the midst of our suffering, it was that night when my heart rate was going 300 beats a minute that I'm laying there, that they actually rush me down into ICU. I'm next to a boy in a bubble. The lights are bright in my faces. The noises are beeping. The ventilators are going off and on. I'm in totally emotional, just chaos, total fear, anxiety. I'm in pain. Everything's awful. And my sweet mother comes, sits down next to me, and she doesn't know what else to do except open the Bible and start reading to me the Psalms. And that night I learned the power of God's word. Because as she read God's word to me, I felt his peace. I felt his calm. And when she'd have to leave and walk out of the room, I'd get nervous again. I'd get anxious. I didn't know how to intercede. I didn't know how to practice the presence of God. But when they'd let her get in and she'd start reading the word of God, I felt peace washing over me. And I was able to make it in the darkest night of my life. Talked to Matt and Sherry Tresser this week, who, by God's grace, we've just seen so many victories with baby Alyssa. Many of you have been praying for baby Alyssa. I talked to Matt about Alyssa, and, and he said, You know, Robert, that if you don't know what I'm talking about, their baby in the womb was given very little chance to live. Then they said, If she Uh, goes through the birthing process, she'll die. And then they said, if for some reason she survives, she'll immediately, immediately die. And if she lives, she'll be a vegetable. She won't be able to move her arms and legs. And all of those things so far have proven false. And then she had this big encephalocele on the back of her head. And they said, that has brain matter in it. And it's going to kill her. And, and they had these, these uh, x-rays. And Matt says, I wish I could have the x-rays and just put them next to each other because this x-ray, the doctors say, see, that's brain matter. And then when they did the MRI after she was born, they said, actually, there's no brain matter. It's all fluid. And so they were able to remove it. But I asked Matt, I said, Matt, how are you doing? And he goes, Robert, I wouldn't have picked this trial ever. But he goes, I would have never wanted to miss it because God has been so real. Men and women, I don't understand Why in our sufferings, God's love is so real, poured out in our hearts. But I talk to person after person who you ask, when did God show himself most near? And it's almost always in the midst of our trial, in the midst of our crisis. Maybe it's because of what James 4 says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. And sometimes it takes suffering, it takes crisis, it takes trial for us to say, I have nowhere else to turn. God, help me. And then, boom, he always comes. Because the Bible says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. It says, you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. And sometimes that's what suffering does. Today, I am so sorry if you are going through suffering today. And I, I, I bet most people in, around the room would say they're experiencing some suffering because it's not just physical suffering. There's relational suffering. So many of us have tremendous pain from broken relationships in our families, maybe with your parents, maybe with your children, maybe with a brother or sister that you're estranged from. Maybe it's being bullied at work or in your school. 
And so there's tremendous emotional pain tied to relationships. Maybe it's just plain emotional pain. Maybe you're suffering through depression or despair. Maybe it's through some crazy fear that you wish you could get over, but you just can't. There's financial suffering where people feel this under a, a, a weight, a burden that they can't get out from. They just can't get out of this debt or they can't seem to get their head above water. And so there's just such tremendous suffering through finances. Some people, it's spiritual suffering. They, they're, they're hearing voices. They feel attacked spiritually. And I don't want to make light of any of it. And I know that God's heart is for those that mourn. But I want to tell you this today, men and women. Don't waste your suffering. Don't waste your suffering. Let it produce perseverance. Let it produce godly character. Let your suffering drive you to find the living hope whose name is Jesus. And lastly, let your suffering drive you to a place where you're desperate for the love of God. And let Him love on you. Let suffering produce its work in you. Let suffering produce what God has for you today. Why don't we stand up?